0: This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had huge and negative effects on the global economy, principally through its disruption of the energy trade. If you drive a gasoline-powered car, you've surely noticed this at the pump. The war is the main driver of this year's gasoline price spike. Energy problems are far more acute in Europe than in the US because Europe relies heavily on Russian exports of natural gas. Gas prices have soared and Russia's also cut back volumes, leading to fears of recession and energy shortages in Europe, especially this winter. As for Russia, the war's been a mixed bag economically. The war itself is costly as are Russian sanctions and the flight of multinational businesses out of Russia, but soaring oil prices are good for Russia's economy and for its tax revenues because Russia is a major oil exporter. About half of Russian oil exports go to Europe, and in an effort to end Russia's war windfall, the EU has agreed to impose an embargo on Russian oil, phasing in by the end of the year. If that comes into effect as planned, it could cripple Russia's economy, but it could also cause a global recession, with oil prices spiking to previously unthinkable levels. So how did we get here, and what options do Western countries have to push back on Russia's energy power? Margarita Balmaceda is an expert on the energy politics of post-Soviet states. She's affiliated with the Ukrainian Research Institute and the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard, and she's a professor of diplomacy and international relations at Seton Hall University. Her most recent book, published last year, is called Russian Energy Chains, the Remaking of Technopolitics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. Margarita, thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about this. My pleasure. My pleasure. So can, can you first scope for people? I mean, we talk about Russia as a petro state. What exactly is the scope of oil and natural gas in the Russian economy? How reliant are they on these industries?
1: They're heavily reliant on several aspects of the fossil fuel economy. Here I mean natural gas, oil, also coal. And two key things to keep in mind here is the role of income from those exports for the Russian budget, through the taxes that come in, the duties that come in through this, through the role of state-owned companies like Gazprom, and secondly, the role of those industries domestically in terms of employment, for example. So both in terms of sheer hard currency income, this is really important for Russia, but also in terms of keeping uh, very important companies and industries working and keeping people employed. And then on top of this, you have the foreign policy element here that we have been especially considering during these last months and and, and years.
0: And so how does that mean that the war affects Russia's economy? I mean, we've, we've had this huge spike in oil prices, over $100 a barrel. Does that mean Russia's coming out ahead from the economic impacts of the war because they make so much more money selling oil at this higher price?
1: So far, this is the case. Because uh, what we tend to forget, and I'm in Germany now, and uh, here the issue of sanctions against Russia because of its renewed uh, invasion of Ukraine is um, a daily point of discussion. But there are many other countries in the world where this is not the main uh, headline news. And there are many countries in the world that are actually benefiting from the way some of those sanctions are affecting the price of some Russian energy products. So let me try to walk you through this. Okay. Uh, when you're talking about crude oil, there are different types of crude oil, different quote-unquote brands. The main Russian brand is called Ural. And this brand, because of the sanctions, actually, it has not become cheaper, but the difference between that brand and other brands has increased.
0: It sells at a discount, basically.
1: Yes. And what you have is other countries which are taking advantage of this to buy that particular type of oil. And as long as they keep buying this oil, Russia will continue benefiting from its oil exports, even if there were to be a full-fledged European Union embargo. On russian oil which hasn't happened yet
0: and so i mean th- this is the dynamic we've been seeing It's countries like india and china are, are buying russian oil we've we've not been able to to get a full participation in trying to turn russia into a prior state and, fr- and frankly there are still substantial russian oil exports in, into europe right which remains you know significantly dependent on on russian hydrocarbons even in spite of the fact that they are you know lining up on on the side of, of ukraine in this war I've been trying to get a sense of – because I've seen all this news coverage about this, this threat of this oil embargo. And if Europe really goes through with this and they really completely stop buying Russian crude oil, Russia can't sell all of that somewhere else, right? And I, I keep seeing people saying basically there isn't enough capacity to divert all of that oil and send it to Asia. And so basically, you would have to have a significant reduction in the total amount of, of global oil production. So you'd get significantly reduced revenue to Russia, but you would also get a huge global spike in the oil price. Is that something that's likely to happen at the beginning of next year?
1: Yes, uh, this is likely to happen and uh, it's going to be compounded by similar trends likely to happen, for example, in terms of natural gas, the price of which is already soaring in, in Europe. Um a little bit less in the U.S. because the U.S. produces most of its own natural gas. But here in Europe, uh, we have a very different situation. So indeed, that is certainly an issue. You are very much on the money when you talk about the issues concerning European a possible European Union embargo on Russian oil because there was never full agreement on this embargo. Uh, all the weeks and months when the European Union was discussing this possible embargo, you had countries like Slovakia. To a smaller extent, the Czech Republic, but especially Hungary, pushing back on this supposedly because of economic reasons. And the agreement was really that uh, seaborne imports would be stopped, but that oil arriving by pipeline could still be imported. So that's not really a full embargo.
0: And, and so, what what fraction are we talking about? There is that what what fraction of European oil imports from Russia would would still be possible?
1: Uh, about, about I would say about thirty percent.
0: Okay. So that's, but it's still that's still a very large reduction presumably would therefore have a very large effect on the global price right Yes yes Okay So then there've been these proposals floating around from the G7 and elsewhere in recent weeks to do various things that, that people are calling smart embargoes, where basically the idea is in, instead of saying that Russia can't export its oil, we say they can export it, but they, they're only allowed to receive a certain price that is much lower than the global market price of oil, but is high enough so that Russia is still making you know more money. It, it still covers their actual expenses to, to produce and export the oil, but doesn't produce all of these windfall profits for them. Can that work? It sounds—I I mean, it, it sounds like this sort of like almost like one weird trick solution. Where it's like, well, what if we just tell them they're not allowed to sell above above a certain price? Will they? Would they? Is there any chance that they will agree to participate in that scheme where we're just going to pay them less for the oil?
1: I'm a little bit skeptical about this because, given the way Russia has politicized energy in particular in the last months, unless they would be really desperate for that money. I can easily imagine a situation where they would say, well, no, we will not do it at this price that you suggest. A lot of the decisions that have been taken in Russia in the last months have been very political decisions. And I'm afraid that this could be the case in in this situation as well.
0: And so what what do you say about people who who contend that basically the the problem is that if Russia doesn't want to participate, they don't want to sell us the oil under those terms. And so they can't export it into Europe. They have certain logistical constraints that prevent them from diverting nearly as much oil as they would need to markets in Asia. So they would have to produce less oil. And it means basically you have to shut off oil wells and that sort of thing. And it's costly to do that. And if you have a mature well, it can be difficult to turn the well back on in a way that is economical after you've turned it off. So basically, if Russia, which is a little bit of a technological basket case, is not one of the world's most efficient operators in terms of oil extraction, if they want to refuse to participate in that scheme and export less oil, that basically it it will persistently impede their ability to be a larger oil producer in the long run, and that that would be a reason that they are stuck and they would have to participate. Is is there validity to that?
1: Um, From a technological point of view, there is a lot to be said for that argument but I just do not, I cannot vouch that the Russian leadership is acting or will act in a rational manner. But you have um, raised a very important point, the technology issue. And the reality is that Russia is actually quite dependent on Western technology for exploiting certain types of fields, especially the so-called, you know, the green fields, the so-called white fields in, in the northern areas. And if the sanctions covering that technology really go through, Russia is going to have a lot of trouble with that as well. So those are very important issues. I just don't know whether the Russian leadership will, the current Russian leadership will act in a rational manner.
0: Basically, it's, you know, they have to shoot themselves in the foot in order to refuse to participate. But they've done a number of things that like don't really look super rational in terms of Russian economic self-interest over the last year.
1: I mean, Russia has caused at least $700 billion of damage on Ukraine. I Imagine Russia, in one way or other, will have to pay for this. Obviously, that is a very damaging thing to the Russian economy. It's not a, not a rational <laughs> action in any way.
0: How did Europe get into this position where it was so dependent on Russian uh, energy exports? Because I mean, you've done work on this for a very long time. Russia has been a very unreliable partner for quite some while and has used its status as an energy exporter to try to, to impose all sorts of political influence, especially over Eastern Europe. Don't these countries look at that and say, this is a problem. We ought to diversify away from Russia. It's, it's weird to me that it took this war uh, to bring a lot of them to that point, And they had built these, all this infrastructure and all these economic systems that are so dependent on Russian oil and gas.
1: Well, I'm really glad that you bring this up because basically that was the question which motivated me to write my last book, Russian Energy Chains. And the actual title of this book should have been Russian Energy Chains, Threat and Temptation across (laughs) from Siberia to Ukraine to European Union. Because the reality is that even when many people in the West and in Ukraine were talking about the threat of Russian energy, In reality, there was also a lot of opportunity involved in participating in those Russian energy chains as an importer, as a co-actor in the export of those uh, hydrocarbons as a transit state, for example. And if you look at the case of uh, Western Europe, let's leave Ukraine aside for a moment, the system of large-scale Importation of Russian oil and Russian natural gas. This is something that has been going on for more than 40 years. First of all, this system, if we let's speak about natural gas for a moment, it was not simply imposed by the Soviet Union on the Western European states. It was basically co created by different business actors in the Western European countries and the Soviet regime. And it benefited all kinds of actors in different ways, which had different agendas than the agendas we identify now. So for example, when Germany, let's say, uh, or rather Southern Germany, Bavaria, starts to import Soviet natural gas, what they were thinking about is we don't want to depend on coal from Northern Germany. Hmm. And let's get that Soviet gas. So it's a different logic. And the situation we had, if we look at the situation in the 2000s, 2010, even after 2014, you had all kinds of actors at the Western European level that benefited from those imports. You can look at it in terms of sheer corruption. Mm -hmm. For example, in the case of the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who a few weeks or months after leaving office becomes a member of the Gazprom board. (laughs) so crazy. (laughs) Um, You can look at it at the level of those national-level monopolists that actually had benefited for many years through the way those markets were delimited. But you can even look at the role of regional governments, like state-level governments in Germany. Mm-hmm. I lived in northern Germany at the time when Nord Stream 1 was inaugurated, 2011. I had a fellowship in a wonderful city called Greifswald.
0: Nord Stream 1 is a major natural gas pipeline running under the Baltic Sea to Germany from, from Russia, right?
1: Yes, and it's uh, it's been at the center of the discussion because some people in the U.S., many people in the U.S., consider this a way for Russia to kind of get rid of Ukraine as a key transit player and as a way for Russia to increase its influence.
0: The concern was basically that without the pipelines under the Baltic Sea, gas has to go through Ukraine and Poland to get to Germany. And so if Russia wants to impose pressure on Ukraine or on Poland and cut off natural gas, would also have to cut off natural gas to Germany, which is a really large market. Basically creating this opportunity for them to bypass those countries, the big concern in those countries basically was that Russia would then throw around its weight, cut off gas to Poland, be able to send it directly to Germany. It would basically weaken their geopolitical situation with regard to to Russia, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, the reality is that many, many, many people in Germany considered that direct pipeline actually something good because It would make their supplies of natural gas supposedly less reliant on, quote-unquote, unreliable Ukraine. Um, (laughs) And so I was there when this was inaugurated, and the city where I was living, it basically shut down the day of the inauguration because anybody who was, anybody was there at the entrance of the pipeline celebrating. And right now there is a huge scandal in that part of Germany because it turns out that the government of that region even created a special foundation to shelter certain individuals from US sanctions related to the pipeline. But even the Greens, even the ecological party in Germany benefited from this because many Greens saw natural gas as a necessary bridge, a less damaging transitional fuel to go from coal and oil to really green sources of energy like solar and wind power. And for them, natural gas was really important as a bridge in that ecological transition. And if Russia was able to supply that natural gas at a relatively low price, that was in their benefit. So everybody benefited. And that's why in 2014, when Russia invades Ukraine and Russia takes control of over 7% of Ukrainian territory, there were some sanctions. There was a little bit of hand slapping. But actually, after 2014, Western European dependency on Russian natural gas and oil increased
0: and so you had something of a split about this within europe right i mean part of part of what Germany was seeking to do was to retire its 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 whole fleet of of nuclear electrical generating stations. France, you've seen just, you know, double down on investment in that. So they're significantly less exposed on natural gas, at least for electricity generation. So it's not everyone had the same perspective that Germany had on this, right? Why was Germany so de facto pro-Russia on these issues in in a way that some of its partners in the EU were not through that period?
1: Well, one really important element had to do exactly with the energy mix that you have in Germany. really significant social weight of the green movement that was very, very much against continuing to operate those nuclear power stations. This is something you didn't see in other parts of Europe, in particular France, as you mentioned. Um, But also you have a kind of historical element that has to do with the German sense of responsibility vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, and in particular Russia, because of the huge human price that was exacted by the Nazi atrocities in the Second World War.
0: So they feel guilty and they buy Russian gas because they feel guilty about the war?
1: Yes, yes. The, the sense of responsibility vis-a-vis the peoples of this former Soviet Union, I think there's a lot of, to be said for that. The problem is that only Russia was seen as the recipient of this guilt or this need for reconciliation. And I know very well that actually per capita many more people were victims of, of Nazi atrocities in Belarus or, and in Ukraine than in Russia. But Ukraine was absent from this sense of responsibility. Only Russia existed there. I think this is another very important reason why Germany was so open to the idea of Nord Stream 1, for example, or Nord, Nord Stream 2 as well.
0: And so then what about countries farther east than Germany? Because I I can sort of understand the Germans. I I don't think they were right, but I can understand why they would basically think they are insulated enough and rich enough and powerful enough to do this business with Russia and protect themselves in the event that Russia becomes an an unreliable partner in one way or another. But Poland and, and Ukraine and various other countries had much more reason to fear what Russia might do. I mean, we're seeing that play out in Ukraine right now. How is it that these countries allowed themselves to remain so enmeshed in, in the Russian energy economy? I mean, R- Ukraine's so dependent on its business as a transshipper of, of Russian natural gas. Shouldn't they have been very motivated over the, you know, over the last 30 years to find ways to insulate themselves economically from Russian energy?
1: Um, absolutely. But I think here we need to, first of all, differentiate between Poland and, and and Ukraine, uh, I'm not a specialist on Poland, but I can certainly tell you that Poland did many more things um, about building its own energy independence in the last 30 years than many other countries. For example, Germany did not invest in building liquefied natural gas terminals. Poland did, and I've even seen it with my own eyes. So I'm going to leave Poland aside from this discussion for a moment. But concerning Ukraine, in the first page of the book, this is the question I raise. How come we have, after 2014, Russia has taken 7% of Ukrainian territory, Russia is still there, and Ukraine still wants to be part of this Russia energy chain? So the answer to this has many levels. The first answer has to do with the fact that, especially in the first 20 years after Ukrainian independence in 1991, there was a huge level of energy corruption. And actually, I wrote an entire book, it was published in 2008, about energy corruption in Ukraine. The levels of corruption have declined significantly after 2014, but everything I wrote in that book is totally true and it's totally, um, I mean, it's a very serious book. And the subtitle of that book is uh, Ukraine's Non-Energy Policy, because at that level (laughs) of corruption, Ukraine did not have a very clear energy policy based on national interests, rather... Energy policy was a byproduct of other things, of deals between oligarchs, all kinds of other things. So that's the first reason why Ukraine did not take a clear position, at least until 2011, 2012. So there was the issue of corruption. There was also the fact that for a variety of reasons, the prices that were charged for natural gas to Ukraine until 2011 were relatively low. It kept the country tied to that kind of addiction. But there are other reasons that do not necessarily have to do with corruption. For example, the fact that Ukraine's transit role gave $1 to $2 billion of income to the state every year. The fact that playing that transit role, as you very rightly pointed out, allowed some kind of counterweight in terms of Russia's power, because now Western European countries would have to at least think about Ukraine. But even at a technical level, and that's something I really discussed at length in in the Russian Energy Chains book, playing that transit role allowed Ukraine's natural gas domestic supply system to be fully loaded. And that's really important with natural gas because you need to have a certain level of pressure. So Mm -hmm. uh, playing that transit role benefited Ukraine in a variety of ways. Unfortunately, it didn't really benefit it in the long term because of Russia's use of this power in, in, in other in other ways and, and Russia's intentions. But Ukraine and many actors within Ukraine benefited from this relationship.
0: And so what is a way forward from here? I mean, you said you're skeptical that Russia will agree to participate on, the, on sort of smart embargo terms. So if we are in for persistent Russian cutoffs of natural gas deliveries to Europe, and also for a significant reduction in total of Russian oil exports going into next year. I mean, there's concern about that generating global recession. There's also concern about the negative economic effects of that undermining the the Western coalition with regard to Russia, that basically this is going to be – it's going to be really costly for everyone. It's going to be costly for Russia. It's going to be costly for us. You'll have domestic political unrest about the fact that gasoline is even more expensive than it is this year. That doesn't seem like a tenable situation. So, I mean, do you think – well, first of all, do you think that the EU will actually go through with the embargo or are they going to cave on that?
1: I think a lot will depend on how the different EU member states deal with the domestic costs of the price increases. If you have a situation where current governments lose power because of the of an outcry about price increases, then I can imagine very well a very clear turnaround also in EU policy. So, I think this is this is something to be really Considered very seriously, how do you manage those domestic impacts? Countries like Germany are doing a number of things. They are even talk. They are talking about changing some of the regulations about the temperature for the winter that you have to keep in in, in buildings. But they are talking about rationing. It
0: sounds very politically painful.
1: Yes, and and you know, as I he- talk to you, I actually I'm getting a little bit worried because I had applied for a Fulbright grant to do research in Ukraine, and. My grant has been redirected to Germany, uh, so I may well be in Germany next year studying uh, the use of um, natural gas by industry for industrial processes, which is like the really problematic issue because you cannot replace that with electricity. Mm -hmm. But I'm very worried because like, am I going to be freezing? (laughs) I don't know whether I want to take that full ride. um, So it's a problem because it's going to affect consumers and it's going to affect those industrial users, which right now do not have an alternative to that there's a lot of work on hydrogen as a possible replacement f- exactly for industry for chemical industry for the uh, steel industry but it's not those solutions are not uh, do not exist at um, at a large uh, scale yet and so that's very very problematic
0: and then, what does that look like on, on the Russian side? I mean, if you if if you have that situation and it's causing those those shortages and those price increases in Europe, that means that you're also having significantly less sale of Russian oil and natural gas. Um, and so, to the extent they're getting any sort of windfall now, they would no longer be getting it then. That I assume looks like a a, a real disaster for the the Russian economy on a significantly larger relative scale than than you see in Europe. I mean, I don't know. Obviously because russia is not truly a democracy there there's more political insulation from that but it seems like the the world of hurt that you would see in europe it would be an even bigger world of hurt in russia right
1: yes it would be but they still have some reserves from last year and from all the money they are making this year so that's going to give them a bit of a cushion and they have the political reserve having to do with the fact that their political system is not as responsive um as ours are and uh you may be aware that there has been an increased, a clear increase in domestic repression in Russia as well. So they are preparing, and they are preparing for that. Now, having said that, I also, am also aware that even the Putin regime doesn't really want to play too much with public discontent. Um, Mm -hmm. This is not about energy, but I don't know if you're aware of the fact that most, uh, many or most of the troops that have been sent to Ukraine are not ethnic Russians are not people from Moscow and St. Petersburg. The Russian regime is a little bit worried about discontent in large cities. Would there be an outcry if there is a real economic collapse? It's hard to tell because repression is increasing, but that's something that they need to keep an eye on as well.
0: And then in, in the longer run, I assume that there will be a reorientation that has already begun in terms of how Europe gets energy so that Russia doesn't get to wield this sort of power in the future. We're seeing Increased uh, liquid natural gas uh, capacity in terms of, of terminals and shipment from the United States where we're making up for those for those Russian imports. So I, I assume if we look five, 10 years down the line, we're looking at a Europe that is not intending to resume whatever it was buying from Russia previously. Um, so I, don't, I mean, I guess I don't know how long that transition takes. How long does that transition take? How how long will it be until Europe is basically able to shrug off not being able to get these imports from Russia?
1: Well, I think it, it will depend on whether the measures that are being considered now are really carried through and there is no political backlash that creates a change in those policies. But it will also depend on what happens with the other side of the equation, which is renewables. And a lot of the discussion right now in Europe is um, the fact that we're bringing back coal-fired Power plants back online in a large scale. The fact that we are building all these terminals or, or, or leasing all these terminals for bringing in LNG is. Does that mean that we are getting wedded to these types of energy when we're supposed to move faster towards renewables? That's a big question. So my answer is it will depend on whether there is a much faster move towards renewables. And now, for example, some some states within Germany including one called Schleswig holstein
0: That's in the north.
1: Yes. Well, you're Mm -hmm. great, and you have a map of Germany in in, in the back, (laughs) yes? Um, They are preparing proposals, for example, to require many buildings to have solar panels. If the movement towards renewables is accelerated, then that will also accelerate long-term move away from Russian hydrocarbons. If not, that may be a little bit of a different different answer.
0: Because... That's what just, I mean, sort of underscores for me the craziness of Russia's choosing to undertake this war. Because, you know, to whatever extent Russia can benefit from short-term disruption in global oil markets and, and rising prices. And to whatever extent Europe is in the short term dependent on them and subject to their leverage, it seems like one of the number one effects of this war is that it's causing Russia's trading partners to figure out how they can stop being Russia's trading partners um, and how to how to make it so that Russia is never able to inflict this leverage upon them again. That's, you know, when when this is the number one key industry in your economy and you're basically destroying much of the world's willingness to trade with you in it. That seems like it has to be terrible for Russia's long run economic prospects. I, I mean, is there, am I missing something there? Is there a way for Russia to stick the landing out of this and, you know, and continue to rely on its, you know, on its oil and gas exports in a way that it once once did? Because, it you know, aside from wanting to punish Russia for this war, it just seems like people will not want to be in this position where they have to rely on Russia not to do something crazy in the future.
1: Well, generally, I agree with you, but let's consider two elements. First of all, the rest of the world, as you yourself mentioned, is still very happy to buy Russian oil. And even Japan is, is buying large amounts of Russian liquefied natural gas and maybe may decide to keep a stake in um, the Sahel two liquefied natural gas hub. So there is a lot of buyers there that are not us. But the other thing that I really think is really important is this really shows how Irrational this war is. The more you look at it, you understand that there is no clear aims and if there is one aim, it makes absolutely no sense. Now, some people say that Russia may want to control Ukrainian hydrocarbons because Ukraine does have hydrocarbons and actually uh, Russia gained control of some of them after it invaded and forcibly annexed Crimea. But the reality is that the aim of this war is not to control those hydrocarbons, it's not even to control that territory. Sadly, I have reached the conclusion that the aim of this war is to obliterate the Ukrainian nation, not even the Ukrainian state. If you start with that, you understand that this makes no sense economically or in any other way.
0: Well, on that uh, grim note, I think we can leave that there. Uh, Margarita Balmaceda is an expert on the energy politics of post-Soviet states. Uh, she's affiliated with the Ukrainian Research Institute and the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. And she's a professor of diplomacy and international relations at Seton Hall University. Thank you so much, Margarita. That was, that was very interesting. Yeah, you're very welcome. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for The Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. You'll find discussion threads about this and our other podcast episodes there. Uh, And that's a feature that's only open to paying subscribers. So if you're not one already, please consider supporting The Very Serious Podcast and Newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and makes it possible. We'd also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadik mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.